Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You know, I love the idea that I have to ask everyone to find their seats because you want to keep talking to each other. That's a good thing. We start by praying. Father, thank you so much for this day, for your Shabbat, Father, but uh, we just also thank you for this time, Father, this time to sit and uh, try to understand this time between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Lord. Father, to think about the things that you've done and the things that sometimes are even difficult, Father. I just pray that you would speak to us at this time, Father, and uh, that your presence would be among us even when we um, are not sure about it or don't feel it, Lord. Shum shum shiach, amen. So, just as Philip talked about today, we, I kind of deliberately chose to sit down during this teaching because um, one of the things we wanted to try to experience this morning was to kind of dwell in that place in between the crucifixion and the resurrection and just kind of feel that and think about it. And so the title of my teaching this morning is Pesach Lamentation. Because this kind of time period after the crucifixion and before the resurrection, I think, is something that we experience a lot more often than we think. And I want to process some of that and really think through it. But the reason why I chose lamentation is that, um, you know, um, during the, pa- the Passover Seder, the Passover Seder, one of the things it talks about is acknowledging the death of the firstborn, acknowledging some of the difficulties of the plagues, right? So even in the original Passover story, you have some death and some difficulty and some suffering as a part of this great miracle of God that God is doing, right? Um, but I also, especially pointing at Yeshua and thinking about Yeshua, one of the things that he compared himself to when they were talking about how great the temple was. Yeshua said, destroy this temple and, and I will renew it again in three days. And talking about his own body. And so the picture that I wanted to look at here and the analogy is when you're after Yeshua was crucified but before he was resurrected, he compared it to the temple being destroyed. And that's a lot of what the book of Lamentations is about, is it's about right after the first temple was destroyed. And it's Jeremiah speaking these lamentations and these groanings and these prayers and difficulties. Okay, And so I think there's a picture that we can find here as we go through the book of Lamentations. I kind of have some different excerpts to really think about this difficult time for the disciples and how it is similar to some of the difficult times for us, okay? So, um, if everyone, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Lamentations 1. Um, There's a few verses I kind of want to share just to kind of try to get the feel of the moment to start with, okay? So, I'm going to read Lamentations 1, verses 11 to 14, and verse 16, and then 20 to 22, okay? Okay? So Lamentations 1, verses 11 to 14. All her people groan as they seek bread. They traded their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look at an eye and see, for I have become despised. 
Is it nothing to you, all who pass by on the road? Think of Yeshua's crucifixion. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by on the road? Remember, he was right at the roads. Is it nothing to you what's happened here? Look and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was brought on me, that Adonai has afflicted in the day of his fierce anger? Now, we do talk about how Yeshua suffered, right? And we always point to how Yeshua suffered. But his disciples struggled too. Right? Because they had to suffer some of the other consequences of what was going on. And that's part of what Peter ran from. Okay? For on high he sent fire into my bones, and it overcame them. He spread out a net for my feet. He turned my back. He made me desolate, faint, all the day long. My transgressions are bound into a yoke, woven together by his hand. They have come upon my neck, and he has sapped my strength. The Lord delivered me over to those I cannot withstand. So, if you think about it from the disciples' perspective, they couldn't hold the crucifixion back, could they? They they weren't able to stop it. There's nothing they could do about it. And that last part, the Lord delivered me over to those I cannot withstand. So you can imagine how hopeless they might have felt, how hard they tried, how they were with the one that they thought was the Messiah. And then they doubt, not sure. What happens now? What do we do from here? What happens? And they can't answer those questions. Right? Verse 16. Over these things I weep, My eyes overflow with water. For far from me is a comforter who might refresh my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Far from me is a comforter who might refresh my soul. What did Yeshua, how did Yeshua describe the Holy Spirit? The comforter that he would send to us, right? Far from me is a comforter who might refresh my soul. They hadn't received the Spirit yet. Not in the more intense way that they received in the book of Acts, right? So they're still kind of in this moment where they feel alone, they feel desolate, they don't know how to encourage each other. Maybe some of them are together in pairs, as we see in in the stories, but generally speaking, they don't know what to do, right? So... One of the reasons I think this is really important to kind of dwell here and think about this is that how many times in our lives is that how we feel anyway? Right? You have something that you hoped for, you have something that you were working for, and then all of a sudden, it's gone. Your hopes are dashed. Something's destroyed. Especially, especially if it feels like it is not recoverable. Like, there are some things that you're like, okay, there's a chance I can keep working for this, this can come back, we just got to keep going, and you can encourage yourself with that, some hope still. But how hopeless did they feel once he was dead? Because how, even after they'd seen Lazarus, it was kind of this physician heal yourself kind of moment. Could they really trust that Yeshua was going to raise himself from the dead? 
I mean, you can see how it would still be confusing, that the enemy could still sow doubt, that you could still have these things where it's like, man, he's gone. Well, what do we do now? And how many times in our life is it that kind of, well, I thought that's what God was doing. Well, I thought this was how the rest of my life was going to be. Or I thought God was going to accomplish this, and it's just gone. Right? Especially if it has to do with special people in your life. I mean, these disciples left everything for Yeshua. When he said, come and follow me, they gave up all of it. Right? They weren't holding on to anything in this world. Yeshua even rebuked another man and said, let the dead go bury their own dead. Sell everything and come and follow me. And that man had a difficult time with that because he was wealthy. But the disciples chose to give up everything for Yeshua. And then all of a sudden he's gone. Now, I have a hard time, for me, myself, kind of appreciating this, because for me, in my life, I've been willing to give up a lot of things anyway. So when I do hold on to something, it's precious to me. And being willing to give that up is all the more difficult, because I'm willing to give up all kinds of stuff. But if there's something I don't want to give up, man, that that gets really difficult. Especially if God says, nope, not happening. Right? I'm sharing this because I want us to feel this. I want you to think about times in your life. I don't understand your pains. I don't know your difficulties. I don't know the things that you're going to, but I know you've had them. Because that's true of this life in general. That we'll have pain and suffering and difficulties. Excuse me. All right, let's go to Lamentations 2. I'm going to read Lamentations 2, verses 6, 11, 14, and 17. So Lamentations 2, verse 6. Like the garden, he laid waste his dwelling destroyed his appointed meeting place. Adonai has caused Moed and Shabbat to be forgotten in Zion. In the indignation of his anger, he spurned king and priest, or Cohen, like the garden. What garden? Eden. So in other words, even these things that were important to God, he chose to destroy them. He took his people out of the Garden of Eden. He destroyed the temple. Even the things that he commanded with his feasts and Shabbats, he took them away. Took them away from his people. And even the king and the priest, he spurned them. There was nothing too high for what God chose to get rid of. Nothing that he wasn't willing to take away. Okay, verse 11. 
Again, my eyes are filled with tears. My stomach is in torment. My heart is poured out on the ground over the destruction of the daughter of my people as young children and infants languish in the city squares. Nothing that escapes the pain. Nothing that escapes the difficulty. Everything in our life gets touched by it. Verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and worthless visions. Remember where it says about teachers in the last days that will tell people what their itching ears want to hear? Don't tell us of destruction. Don't tell us of these things. Speak to us good things. But it goes on. They did not expose your iniquity so as to restore your captivity. Rather, they have seen for you false and worthless oracles. In other words, someone who's teaching the Word of God, if they're not showing you your iniquity and your sin, they're not teaching the Word of God. Why? We want to run from the captivity. We want to be safe. We don't want to be suffering these things. But it says, they did not expose your iniquity so as to restore your captivity. In other words, the iniquity has to be exposed. The sin has to be exposed in order to set free the captive. Boy, that's not easy to deal with, is it? Because then it's like you suffer twice. You suffer the consequences of your sin, and then you suffer God dealing with you for them. But it's to restore the captivity. Which leads us to verse 17. Lamentations 2, verse 17. Adonai has done what he planned. That starts to change the whole tone, doesn't it? That one phrase. See, it's like when you're in the middle of the suffering, you start to make these assumptions about God. You start to get angry at God. You start to assume His intentions. You start to think that He's wrong. At the end of the book of Job, God's one rebuke of Job is He said, would you justify your... Would you... Oh, now I'm going to misquote it. Would you say that I commit injustice in order to justify yourself? I'm misquoting it, but it's in like Job 40. But basically God is saying, Job... You're trying to justify yourself, but in the process of justifying yourself, you're acting like I have done injustice. When we say in the midst of these troubles, we haven't done anything wrong, it's like we're saying to God that He has. That He's made the wrong choices. That He did things wrong. It wasn't supposed to go this way. That's not how it's supposed to work. You said this and this and this. You're supposed to do your word, right? But even in the suffering, back to verse 17, God, Adonai has done what he planned. He has fulfilled his word that he commanded from days of old. He has overthrown you without pity. He enabled the enemy to gloat over you. 
He has exalted the horn of your foes. It was God's plan that Yeshua would be given over to his enemies. It was Yeshua's plan that the disciples, in a sense, also were given over to their enemies. Right? Just as Yeshua set an example, if y'all talked about this last night in your Passover Seder, set an example for his disciples by how he washed their feet, saying that you should serve others just as I have served you. Is he not also setting an example of you should be willing to suffer just as I suffered for you? So it was God's plan to be handed over to the enemies. And who are we to say that we are without sin, that we don't deserve it anyway? Now, there's still encouraging things here. But for a minute, I want to shift over to the book of Zechariah. And I want to think about this a little bit more because, again, we're trying to look backwards and stay in that moment when Yeshua, um, what the disciples experienced and what they felt. But I also want to look to the future and think about how they're still suffering in front of us. Okay? So I want to go to Zechariah 12, verses 10 to 13. It says this, Then I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication, when they look toward me whom they pierced. This is speaking of when Yeshua returns. Okay, They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. See, so often we look to the day of the Lord even and think of it as a day of joy. But even in... I think it's the book of Amos. Boy, I needed to do my homework more here. I think it's the book of Amos where he says, Woe to you who look to the day of the Lord, for it is a day of darkness and deep gloom. Okay? They will mourn on that day and grieve. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, mourning like Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. The land will mourn clan by clan, the clan of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the clan of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. Each of the remaining clans will mourn by itself and their wives by themselves. Remember how Philip talked earlier about when Yeshua is crucified, like the disciples scattered by themselves, maybe in pairs, maybe not, but they scattered. Yeah, it's kind of a lonely time when you're mourning. But why is that? Because it's intensely personal. I mean, when Yeshua was crucified, and each disciple is feeling their own pain. One of my favorite verses is in the book of Proverbs, that each heart knows its own sorrow and no one else can share its joy. When we're friends in community together, yeah, we can share each other's burdens and share each other's joys, but not quite. 
You each still have your own hurts. You each still have your own delights. You each still have your own hearts and your own pains. And so when Yeshua was crucified, each disciple had their own issues and went and mourned and separated on their own. And I bet even right here in this crowd, you all feel really lonely right now. Right? Because you're not feeling my words, you're feeling your pain. But God has a purpose for that. It's according to his plan. Let's go back to Lamentations. I'm going to go to Lamentations 3. I'm going to read the entire chapter of Lamentations 3. Because this chapter is quite interesting. Because I feel like this chapter goes through a a progression that we each should go through. Okay? That even when we're in our difficulties and you're processing and you have these things in your heart, okay, that there's there's the progression of you just have to feel the pain. You can't hide from the pain. You can't act like it's not there. You just have to feel it. And then it moves to you starting to realize the things that God has done. And then it moves to prayer and reaching back to God again. And that's what you see in this chapter. So let's go through it. Lamentations chapter 3. I am the strong man who has seen affliction. By the rod of his wrath, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not light. Surely he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Y'all feel that verse sometimes? Surely he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He made my flesh and my skin waste away, broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He made me dwell in dark places like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot get out. He made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He walled in my ways with hewn stone. He twisted my paths. He is a lurking bear to me, a lion in hiding. Like you're going to turn the next corner and he'll consume you with something else. He turned aside my paths and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and made me the target of his arrow. He shot into my kidneys arrows from his quiver. I have become a laughingstock to all my people, their song all day long. 
He has filled me with bitterness and made me drink wormwood. He broke my teeth with gravel. He made me wallow in ashes. My soul has been deprived of shalom, peace. I have forgotten goodness like it's been so long. You don't even remember the last thing God did that was good to you. That or it's been so difficult that you forget those things. So I said, my endurance has perished and my hope from Adonai. Ready to give up. Right? Remember my affliction, my homelessness, bitterness, and gall. Whenever I remember, my soul is downcast within me. Because what does he remember? The hardship, the difficulty, the problems, the pain. Now here's the shift. This I recall to my heart. Therefore, Therefore, I have hope. Because of the mercies of Adonai. We will not be consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Adonai is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Just a few verses before, right? Like my hope is perished. But no, I will hope in him. Adonai is good to those who wait for him. To the soul that seeks him. Isn't it, isn't it kind of gracious that God didn't wait very long to resurrect Yeshua? Can you imagine what it would have been like if it had been months or years? It would have been really confusing too, by the way. But it only was a few days. Right? It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of Adonai. Not complaining. Not worrying about, God, what have you done to me? I'm ruined because of you. Boy, I've said those words. <clears throat> it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent he has, since he has laid it upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Why is this important? Does this make sense to you guys? It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. What do the youth want to do? Go have fun, enjoy life, not worry about tomorrow, eat, drink, and be merry. The yoke here is the burden and the sorrow. It's good for a man 
in his youth to understand the difficulties of life. It's good for a man in his youth to see the problems and not run from them. How many people have to, what's the phrase, learn the hard way? And talk about all the mistakes they made in their youth and they had to learn it the hard way. But it's good to choose sorrow and difficulty and pain in your youth because then you know the pain. You know the difficulties and you move away from sin because of it. Right? <clears throat> now, the action, the prayers. Let him offer his cheek to the one who strikes him. Let him have his fill of disgrace. In other words, a young man choosing and willing to suffer. For the Lord will not reject forever. For though he has caused grief, yet he will have compassion according to his abundant mercies. So for the one who's willing to suffer, who's willing to choose it, they're doing it in faith. They're doing it in faith that God will have compassion at the time of his choosing. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men. In other words, God doesn't delight in afflicting us and harming us. He's not poking us and then laughing at us. It's not what he's doing. <clears throat> For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men to crush under his foot all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a person of justice before the face of Elion, to defraud a person in his lawsuit. Would the Lord not see? He doesn't delight in those things, but he has a purpose in them. Who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has decreed it? His plan. His purposes. Is it not from the mouth of Elyon that both calamities and good things proceed? Should we not accept from the Lord both good and bad? Verse 39. Why should any living person complain when punished for his sins? Let us examine and test our ways and let us return to Adonai. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You shrouded yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. There's no prayer that anybody could have prayed that would have stopped Yeshua being crucified. You have made us scum and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies opened their mouth wide against us. Panic and pitfall have befallen us, devastation and destruction. 
Streams of tears run down my eyes because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eye flows unceasingly without stopping until Adonai looks down from heaven and sees. My, eyes tor- my eye torments my soul because of all the daughters of my city. For no reason my enemies hunted me down like a bird. They cut off my life in the pit and cast stones upon me. Waters flowed over my head. I said, I have been cut off. I call on your name, Adonai, from the depths of the pit. You heard my voice. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You drew near on the day I called to you. You said, do not fear. The day. The day. Think about the disciples on that day right after the crucifixion. And like God saying to them, do not fear. Lord, you pled my soul's case. You redeemed my life. I don't know. You saw the wrong done to me. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengefulness, all their schemes against me. You heard their taunt, Adonai, and their plots against me. The lips of my assailants and their whispering are against me all day long. Look at them, sitting or standing, they mock me in their song. This is another reason why the disciples would have fled. You think that they would have been afraid for their lives after Yeshua was destroyed? This is why Peter denied Yeshua three times. Look at them sitting or standing. They mock me in their song. Pay them back what they deserve, Adonai, according to the work of their hands. Give them a distraught heart. May your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of Adonai. Now, yes, we are to pray for those who persecute us, but it is also appropriate to pray for justice. But we have to wait on God for that justice. This prayer is asking God to do it. It's not taking it into their own hands. But God is just, and we have to wait for his time on that. It's really important that even in the midst of the struggle. And when we, I'm going to get to some of the, the New Testament passages here in a minute. To still give God the glory. And there are some ways that the disciples did that too. I'll show you that. It's subtle. It's very subtle. <clears throat> so I'm going to go to Lamentations 5, 19 to, 20, 19 to 22. This is the very end of Lamentations. You, Adonai, are enthroned forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us and forsake us for so long? Bring us back, Lord, to you, Adonai, and we will return. Renew our days as of old. Do you all recognize that verse? It's in our liturgy. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. Well, that's kind of depressing. But that's what it feels like still in that moment, right? 
when Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, he knew they were going into exile for 70 years. He wasn't even going to see the people coming back from the exile. And if you're the disciples and you're right there between the crucifixion and the resurrection, that's probably what it still feels like. But still, it's glorifying God. You are enthroned forever from generation to generation. And he knows that. There might still be doubt. There might still be struggle. But he's still glorifying God even in that struggle. And God has not utterly rejected us. That's why he says, do not fear. Now, because it's God's plan, one of the things that I think is also important for us to understand is that God gives us this kind of encouragement in order for us to be able to have just enough encouragement, just enough understanding, just enough faith when we are in those difficult times. But I do think that Yeshua always tries to push us to one more level, to understanding something deeper. And so I'm going to go to Matthew 13, 24 to 30. This is one of Yeshua's parables. It's a parable of the wheat and the tares. He says this, He presented to them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now when the stalk sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. So the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? And this is what we do to God. Wait a minute. Don't you intend good things? Didn't you do good things? Why do you allow evil? What's this? Verse 28, but he replied, an enemy did this. Now the slaves say to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Right? Natural response. You ever run into people that they have a very strong sense of justice, but they're really not very strong believers? And their attitude is like, oh, well, we just need to get rid of these people. Right? I can think of a few movies I'm not going to name that are really not good movies, but that kind of idea of people that get that strong sense of justice and just want to remove these sinners from the earth. Okay? No, he says. No, for while you are gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until... The harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, first gather up the weeds and tie them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the wheat and the weeds are the people of God and the people who aren't. And he's going to separate them at the harvest time. But here's the interesting part. His choice not to uproot the weeds is to have mercy on the wheat.
It's actually God's mercy that he doesn't just tear things up right now. It's actually God's mercy to allow the wheat and the weeds to grow together. It was actually God's mercy that he pushed Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. That's really hard to get your mind around. It's really hard to accept that the suffering and the pain and some of the things that God does are actually mercy. Because it forces you to think about, oh, wow, this actually could be worse. If you think about the disciples, once Yeshua was destroyed, the authorities didn't actually hunt them down. They kind of just let it go. They didn't hunt them down until later, till after Yeshua was resurrected. They were given the Holy Spirit, and then they started teaching about the resurrection. So even there, on that day, after Yeshua was crucified, there was mercies that they didn't even see. They weren't running for their lives. They went and hid and separated and mourned, but nobody was trying to kill them. You see what I mean? There were mercies that they didn't even appreciate right there at that time. So now let's go to one of the stories of the resurrection. Because I feel like some of Yeshua's own words and some of the stories are really interesting here too. For you guys to see all the things that I've been saying. So you can actually see it in the story itself. So I'm in Luke 23. We're going to read Luke 23, verses 50 to 56. And then we're going to read all of chapter, Luke chapter 24 as well. Okay? So Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph. And this is after Yeshua has already been crucified, okay? So now there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and righteous man. He had not been in agreement with the council in their actions. We're just talking about the Sanhedrin. He was from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body. And he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock where no one had ever been laid. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. And Yeshua throughout his ministry said, the kingdom is here. And then Yeshua is crucified, but this man still does something. He doesn't give up. He doesn't walk away. He knows there's still something that needs done. And he takes action. God had used this man to prepare the tomb. God had used this man to have the right things in place at the right time because it was according to God's plan. So even when his hopes seemed dashed, he still needed to do his part. And the next couple verses are similar. Now it was the day of preparation and Shabbat was approaching. 
The women who had come with him from the Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, but on Shabbat they rested, according to the commandment. How easy would it have been to just abandon everything, to give up on everything? The one we thought was the Messiah was good. How many people, you get to this point, and God doesn't do things the way they expect, and they walk away from God altogether. Or they remain angry and bitter with God. But they knew and valued and still kept the Shabbat. Even in our pain, even in our struggles, God has still given us things to do. And as we're waiting for the kingdom, that's part of what the kingdom is doing. That's part of the work of the kingdom. If we still have that hope, and we still know that we can do those things, even in the midst of struggle and pain and difficulties and hardship, those things are a testimony of who God is. Let's move to Luke 24. Now on the first day of the week at daybreak, the women came to the tomb carrying the spices they had prepared. They found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Yeshua. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember what he told you while he was still in the Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be executed and on the third day rise up? I mean, the angels are like, He told you what he was going to do. He told you what was going to happen. Yeshua told all of us, in this life you will have difficulties. In this life you will have hardship. And it says in the book of Revelation, he'll wipe away every tear. He told us this was going to happen. And he encouraged his disciples. I tell you these things so that you will not be afraid. There's some sense of we really should know better. There's some sense of it's really important for us to see the good things that God has done. Not so that we can avoid the pain or get away from the pain or think we can do a good enough job so these bad things don't happen to us. But so that even in the midst of the pain, or the difficulties, or the challenges, or the temptations, or the struggles, or the failures, or things that just feel like utter destruction, that God still will be there. That God still has good things planned. Like the prophetic word that I gave a few weeks ago, where I said that the victory is through the battle, not away from the battle. 
And so when the angels speak to them, they're kind of like, he did tell you this. This is what you need to remember. This is what you need to keep in mind. Verse 8, and they were reminded of his words. And when they returned from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to everyone else. Now it was Miriam from Magdala, Joanna, the Miriam of Jacob, and others together with them who were telling these things to the emissaries, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Remember how we talked about everybody has their own heart issues, everybody has their own problems, their own difficulties? These women had finally had that experience. They believed. They saw it. They knew something. And I've seen this happen in communities. I've seen this happen in families. There's someone that wakes up. There's someone that sees. There's someone that God does something with them. And God starts doing more with them. And yeah, God starts to give a testimony to the other people in the family or the group or the community or whatnot. And it's, they're not quite there yet. God's starting to wake them up, and God's starting to do things with them, but man, that sounds ridiculous. Really? You're telling me God's doing that with you? That doesn't make any sense. I don't know why God would be doing that with you. That's, God wouldn't do that. <clears throat> but Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Leaning in, he sees only the linen clothes, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. He had to experience something for himself, and that's okay. God sees your heart. Yes, it is okay for you to pray, for God to speak something to you, to remind you, to encourage you with your difficulties, so that you have that experience yourself. It's okay. You don't just have to take someone else's word for it that God's doing something in their life and that's awesome for you, but no, God doesn't do that with me. I'm glad to see that God's blessing you, but no, he doesn't bless me. He hates me for some reason. No, God wants to give you that experience too. He wants to speak to you. <clears throat> Now behold, two of them, I love this story. Now behold, two of them on that very day were traveling to a village named Emmaus, a distance of about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were speaking with one another about all the things that had been happening. While they were talking and discussing, Yeshua himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I love this part. Then he said to them, what are these things you are discussing with one another as you are walking along? They stood still looking gloomy. Then the one named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? I mean, seriously, you haven't heard? Have you been under a rock? Yeshua said to them, what kind of things? As if he doesn't know. Right? And they said to him these things about Yeshua from Netzeret, who was a prophet, powerful in deed and word before God and all the people, 
how the ruling Kohanim and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they executed him. But we were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Oh, we were hoping. We thought that was going to happen. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. But also, some women among us amazed us. Early in the morning, they were at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came, saying that he had also seen a vision, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he is alive. Some of those with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see him. Still not quite there. The evidence is still right in front of their faces. Still something in their hearts. Can't. And we do this. We do this all the time. Because here's what, watch what Yeshua says to them. Yeshua said to them, Oh foolish ones, so slow of heart to put your trust in all that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. Now, we can look at the scriptures and say, this is about Yeshua, this is about Yeshua, this is about Yeshua. But I want you to look back on your own life and all those difficulties and pains and say, this was God speaking to you. This was God speaking to you. This was God working in your life. That divorce, that hardship, that person that died in your life, that thing that someone did to you, that trauma or that assault or something else. All of those terrible sins and difficulties in your life but God was still doing things to work in your life, to speak to you. All the things that you looked past because you were looking at the pain. But God was still doing things in your life. And some of the most precious things to you even right now might not have come into your life, but for some of the things that happened that were painful. Just as he does this in the scriptures, this is what he does in each of our lives. And then, the light bulb moment. They approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther on, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, and the day is already gone. So he went in to stay with them, and it happened that when he was reclining at the table with them, he took the matzah, offered a blessing, and breaking it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from them. <laughs> See why it's so important to just have that little bit of hope? to remember the good things that God has done in the struggle. Yes, one day you will understand. It, it will happen. One day you'll get it. 
you'll see the things that God was doing. And you'll marvel at it. And you'll say, my goodness, look at what God did. But you had to go through the pain to see that. Let's keep going. Verse 32. They said to one another, Didn't our heart burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us? Like somehow we knew, but we didn't know. We knew God was doing something, but we didn't get it. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and others with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. He, appeared, he has appeared to Simon. Then they began telling about the events on the road and how he became recognized by them in the breaking of the matzah. Remember how we talked about before about the, what did we say in the last chapter? That Joseph still had something to do? That the women still kept the Shabbat? Remember, unleavened bread is a whole week. So when they're with him the next day, they're not eating regular bread, they're eating matzah. So they sit down to have a meal together and they eat some more matzah. They're still doing the things that God put in front of them. And then all of a sudden, this is another reason why the things that God has given us are so important. Because sometimes it's not the action, it's not the specific things. Yes, God will teach us through those things, but sometimes it's so that you're in the right place at the right time when God chooses to do something. That's one of the reasons why Shabbat is important. That's one of the reasons why the feasts are important. They're his times. And if we just trust him and keep going, that's how we'll be in the right place at the right time. <clears throat> While they were speaking of these things, Yeshua himself stood in the midst of them and said, Shalom Aleichem. Oh my God! Where... <laughs> just shows up. And you don't know when God's going to show up, right? But they were startled and terrified. <laughs> they were thinking they're seeing a ghost. Then he said to them, why are you so shaken? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Are you really surprised by all of this? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. I think of Isaiah 40. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. For when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still in disbelief, in disbelief due to joy and wonder. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. That sounds really contradictory, right? Wait a minute, this is like too good to be true. That's the phrase we use. That's probably what they're feeling, right? This is too, wait, what? No, oh, hold on. Like they're feeling it, they're feeling it, but wait, this still doesn't make sense, right? Just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, like they're feeling it. They're feeling something burning within them, but they still don't see it. 
And that's where they're at. It's like, this is too good to be true. They're feeling it. Something's happening, but I still don't get it. This still doesn't make sense. He said to them, do you have anything to eat here? Huh? (laughs) Yeah, I'd be hungry too. (laughs) They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written concerning me in the Torah of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, I love this because he comes and he has a meal with them again, and it's totally normal. And here's the thing. What we want to be normal is not normal at all. What we want to be normal is a life of ease, not too much difficulty. I just get to kind of do what I'm supposed to do and nobody bothers me. What we want to be normal isn't how it works. But Yeshua comes in and he says, what's normal is that the word of God is going to be fulfilled. What's normal is suffering. What's normal is God doing things according to his plan. What's normal is you walking that out day to day in your mealtimes and in your prayers and in your sleeping and in your rising and your walking and in your sitting. What's normal is us following after God in everything that we do and expecting that there's going to be times of difficulty and expecting that there's going to be times of great miracles. That's normal. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures because this is what's normal. And he said to them, so it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the removal of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Remember, we started with, I have no comforter. And he's sending the Holy Spirit as a comforter. So the Holy Spirit in your lives is meant to be normal. Part of how we live. Even in the midst of difficulties. So that you have that comforter with you. Then Yeshua led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while blessing them, he departed from them and was taken up into heaven. After worshiping him, also normal, right? Worship. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Because that was normal, right? So, amazingly, as difficult and as miraculous, as challenging and as joyful as these three days were for the crucifixion, the Sabbath, and then the resurrection, these are normal things with God that he has planned. These are the kind of things that he wants to do in our lives. He is going to be with us in the difficulties. 
He has a purpose for those difficulties. He has a plan. And even though, yes, those difficulties can be lonely, God is with us in the midst of them. He's there for us, and we can be there for other people too. Yeshua didn't show himself to the disciples all at once. He appeared to a few and let them give a testimony. And he appeared to a few more and let them give a testimony. Right? And slowly they all kind of started waking up and understanding what was going on. And then they still had to wait. Because he didn't give the comforter right then either. I mean, we talked about the confusion between the days of the burial and resurrection. There might still be, not as much, but maybe a little bit of confusion in those 10 days between when Yeshua ascended to heaven and then they still had to wait for the comforter. I think they were more encouraged by then because they saw Yeshua alive, but still, they had to wait for even more. And I think for all of us, that's one of the things that's really important for us to get our minds around. Because when you're stuck in those difficulties, when you're stuck in those problems, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You don't see what's going to change. You don't see what God's going to do. You don't see how it's going to work out. You don't see what he's going to change. All you see is the pain. All you can see is the difficulties. All you can see is all the chain of events that have led you to a place you don't want to be. It is important to remember that God's going to do something in the midst of those difficulties, even when you don't know what it is he's going to do. Keep doing the things you know you need to do. Keep doing the things that God has clearly put in front of you. I myself, I personally went through something, I want to say late last year, where I was just really angry about a few things. And God said to me, he said, why are you angry? Don't you know I'm doing this for your benefit? Like Romans 8, for all things work for the good of those that love him and who keep his commandments. God is doing these things for a good purpose for us. I hope you guys are encouraged. Tonight, we get to take joy in the resurrection. And that's our hope. That's our hope that those days will come, that the good things of God will come. And yes, ultimately our hope is in the day of Yeshua's return and the kingdom, but you can still have hope for things in these days that God is going to do. You can still have hope for the things that God is going to change in your life. doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. doesn't mean it's all going to be right. But if you look for those good things, man, I think of Paul when he says, for I think that our current sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Not even worth comparing. And then we can get through those difficulties and those understandings 
and those things that are so hard that you think you can't get through, and you're praying for things that are prayers that God's probably not going to answer. Because he has a better plan. God is good. And all the time. All right, when we pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for the difficulties. Thank you for the challenges. Thank you, Father, for your plan and your goodness. Thank you for the ways that you are with us in the midst of trouble. Thank you that you know our hearts are weak, that you know that we fail, that you know that we lose hope, that you know that we get discouraged. Thank you that you know that we get angry. Sometimes we want to yell at you. Thank you that you have such incredible patience with us. Thank you that you do give us enough, that you remind us of things that you've already said, that you bring to remembrance things that you've already done in our lives, that you show us the path that you've already put in place to encourage us and remind us that you have good things ahead of us, challenges ahead of us, but also good things. Father, just pray that you would Knit together our hearts. Knit together our spirits and heal some of those broken places, Father. That we are better able to endure the pain. That we are better able to endure the struggle and still have hope. And show others the light in the midst of their darkness. And Father, we just thank you so much that you didn't leave us in this place. That the resurrection did come. And for all of us, the resurrection will come. <laughs> Father, let, let us be different from today forward. Let us experience what the disciples experienced, knowing that after seeing the resurrection, after knowing the resurrection, it would never be the same. And all these things we thank you, Lord. Shem Yeshua Mashiach, in Jesus' name, amen.